Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, old man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Friday, July the 20th, 2012. This is episode 946 of the Survival Podcast, and since it's Friday, 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 you know what that means. It's not time for monster trucks, it's time for your calls. To the Think Line, 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. Don't pick that phone up right now thinking you're going to call in live. This is a pre-recorded show. If you call in right now, there'll be nobody here. Well, there'll be a voicemail. And on that voicemail service, you can leave me a call like the ones you're going to hear today. And on average, within a week or two, maybe three at the most, you may or may not hear your call on the air. If it goes longer than that... Assume that your call has traded out uh, just through time and volume, and you can recall, you know, call in again. And I pretty much screen the calls in the order that are received. When I get 12 calls for the week, I'm done, and I keep going forward. Eventually, some of the calls are too old, and I start moving forward again. So that's how it works. So it doesn't mean you called me and your call sucked and I didn't want to do it. It means that maybe your call just never even got through the screening process based on volume. And if you call again, maybe you'll be in a different uh, order in the henpecking uh, arrangement. So uh, do feel free to call back in again and try to uh, get your call on. Now, calling from a quiet place, calling from a good cell phone connection or landline or Skype or something like that is a good idea. If you call me on the back of a motorcycle running a weed eater or running a chainsaw, trust me, or in the proximity of someone doing that, trust me, you will not be on the air. Nobody's done that in a while, by the way. I guess I've gotten through on that one. Anyway, before I take your calls, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, KnifeKits.com. Hey, you want to learn how to make knives? Get over to KnifeKits. You can get a book or a DVD and a basic kit and some finishing stuff, and you can make a knife even if you've never made a knife before, if you know how to use basic hand tools. Oh, well, wait, you're a master bladesmith and you're looking for exotic materials like buffalo horn or mammoth tusk or Damascus steel? Get over to Knife Kits. They've got that, too. From beginner to expert alike, Knife Kits has it all. And remember, 5% discount for all members of the Support Brigade. So if you're a member Support Brigade member, you're going to order from Knife Kits, log into your MSB account, click on Benefits, get your discount code for them before you order. Next up today, ready-made resources. Hey, what more can we ask for from a company than to say, hey, This is our name. We're Ready-Made Resources. And then you go to their site and you find all the resources you need ready-made, ready to go. Point, click, and buy for your prepping. That's what you get with Ready-Made Resources. Excellent customer service, great pricing, uh, and a huge selection. If you can think of it for your prepping needs, Ready-Made has it. Check them out today at ReadyMadeResources.com. Best way to visit KnifeKits.com and ReadyMadeResources.com is to, uh, to go out and... Uh, Visit the survivalpodcast.com first, our website, and click on their banners in the right-hand margin. Then you know you're dealing with an actual sponsor that carries my personal endorsement. Next up, check out tspcopper.com. Yeah, tspcopper.com, or go to our site and look for the uh, copper medallion with the vowel head on it in the center column just under the Survival Forum link, and uh, click on that. Either way, you'll get there. And you can get some really cool copper medallions that are a very affordable way to diversify your metal, have AOCS barter currency in your possession, and share cool messages like The Real Truth About Money, Ron and Rand Paul, uh, The Survival Podcast. There's even a beekeeping one and some other cool stuff. There's a John Collett one, uh, Texas Republic one. There's a Free State Project one. There's all kinds of cool stuff. Go check it out. And remember, the pricing on those sites, including the discounts, are for rolls of 20, not for one coin. Occasionally, I've got people go, $34 for one copper coin, Jack. Are you crazy? Silver's hardly that much. No, $34 for one roll of one-ounce copper coins, quantity 20, 
and discounts from there. And MSB, guys, you get a discount on all the copper purchases that you make at tspcopper.com and get on your benefits page. And that reminds me to tell you, hey, if you like the show, if you think that it's worth having every day and you think it's worth 20 cents an episode and you haven't joined the Member Support Brigade yet, consider doing so. You'll help support the show. You'll get all these great discounts we're talking about. You'll get over $150 worth of free eBooks. And uh, you'll get some content that you can't get anywhere else. And I'm going to be adding some new content uh, out of the public domain. But I found something really cool uh, that I won't tell you about today. It's for the Monday show that I'm using to take certain things that are already public and spin them into PDFs for you. And uh, I'll tell you how to do that for yourself. But I'm taking certain websites that are just awesome. And since they're already public domain, I am going ahead and just making them into PDFs and citing the source of the content when I do that so that MSB members can just grab that stuff and make it part of like their thumb drive library. And I got a really cool one for you on Monday. You're going to have to wait to see what it is, though. Uh, last but not least today, please, if there's any way you can, come meet me, come meet other TSP people, and come meet some really awesome folks at the Self-Reliance Expo, Arlington, Texas, July 27th and 28th. That's next Friday and Saturday. Uh, come on out, and if you come on Friday, you might get to meet my business partner, Neil Franklin. He's probably going to show up later in the afternoon. We're probably going to do some drinking together, invite some of you guys to come out and have a few beers with us or something like that as well. Uh, so Neil will be a cool guy for you guys to meet as well. All right, with all of that wrapped up, and oh, if you guys want to come to the uh, the expo, All the links for all the information. We have a special meetup just for TSP people on Saturday morning where you get in early. All, all the links for the info on that will be uh, in today's show notes. And those of you that are coming for the TSP-only meetup, I want to remind you guys again, all you have to do is look for a sign near the ticket sales that says TSP Meetup, and you'll find either Scott or, uh, or, or Ron, and they'll escort you in early as VIPs that you guys are. All right, with that, let's go ahead and take your first call for today's show. Hey, Jack, this is Mike in Vermont. Uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts about eating insects, otherwise known as entomophagy. And I have no question they'd be great for survival, but I'm actually thinking about incorporating them into my regular diet. And I've been doing the paleo diet since January with great results, and it seems like it could be, uh, could be the next level. So insects could be foraged, they could be farmed, and seem like a wonderful source of protein and Uh, different nutrients, calcium, things like that. And I've read that most people around the world actually incorporate insects into their diet, um, with the exception of the U.S. and Europe. And just wanted to see what you thought about that. Thanks. Well, for a true long-term survival situation, I'd say knowing how to um, insect farm or insect forage and how to make them as appetizing as possible is probably a valuable skill. Uh, personally, I'm going to be pretty dadgone hungry before I start living on, uh, you know, uh, what do you call mealyworms and crickets and, and stuff like that. Um, my experience with eating insects is limited, uh, but actually not terrible. Uh, during uh, survival training, jungle survival training in Panama, uh, a couple different things that we ate that weren't that bad were, one, we ate very large tarantulas and basically threw them on the fire and pulled the uh, inside, and it's very meat-like uh, from the exoskeleton and ate that. It just it was a big spider, got a very little bit out of it, uh, of really stuff that you would want to eat. But it was remarkably similar to crab meat, uh, way more than I expected, and uh, scorpions. And scorpions, if you cut their little stinger off and uh, roast them till they're crispy, 
They're not that bad, and the smaller they are, the crispier you can make them, and the less bad that they are, and to a point where if you roast them just right, they're actually not bad at all. They're pretty decent, and the only thing you can think of is, man, if I had a little salt or maybe a little chili powder to go on these things, they, they really would be pretty decent. Um, but in that training, we also discovered that throughout the swamps and marshes of the jungle, there were these great big crabs, these land crabs. And once we found those things, uh, we ate as little insect as the cadre would allow us to, you know, get away with. Hey, there might not always be a crab there. You know, well, if I'm on my own, I'm going to eat the crab. Because uh, it was much better than trying to live on insects. Um, but I don't have anything personally against it. But I don't have a whole lot of good feelings for it, but I get it, right? And I understand it. And you're right. I don't know. Most might be a a bit of a stretch, but let's say a, a large portion of the world, including insects in their diet, I think is quite common. Asia, uh, there's a lot of use of different things, especially crickets seem to be something that get eaten a lot. I've eaten the chocolate-covered grasshopper-type stuff when I was a kid because it was kind of a novelty and a dare thing and all. And the reality with that was there's so much chocolate on the damn things, uh, you really don't notice the, the grasshopper. So if I have chocolate, I don't really need I guess unless I need the protein. So I think it's a valid thing, uh, but I'm not getting in line to do it just yet. And I kind of feel like that is, for me personally, Like, I gotta be in a situation where I don't have another choice. And that might be being closed-minded. And I'm, I'm open to the fact that I'm being closed-minded there. And I'm open to someone else demonstrating to me by preparing these dadgone things and saying, here, try them. And I would. And if you can get me to a point where I can get past kind of the whole I'm eating a bug thing and, and get to the point of where it's not just to survive, but it would be a regular thing for me if they tasted good, um, I would probably be okay with it, but I'm not. There's so many other things that I want to do from a self-sufficiency, self-sustaining standpoint. It's kind of way at the bottom of the list for right now, and hopefully it won't get moved by priority and need to the top of the list anytime soon, but, but you never know. There are certain bugs that don't taste good. Uh, and I guess that's just like there's probably certain animals that don't taste good and certain foods that don't, you know, certain edible yet not good tasting vegetables or things like that. Or other, you know, some people would like them, some people wouldn't. I, I don't know. Um, but I think it's valid. I mean, that's my overall thing. I think it's a valid choice. I think it's a valid nutritional source. And I think there might be good ways to do it, and people have taken stabs at it. But I think it's an uphill battle in this country, at least for now. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. It's Ronnie in Iowa. I finally got my home in a rural community of only 220 people. However, I have very little yard space. I have put over two-thirds of it into food production, and everything is looking great, so I will have a very nice harvest. The upstairs here has three really nice bedrooms that are incredibly well lit. I would like to hear your thoughts on indoor gardening, and is it possible for me to grow dwarf fruit trees inside And could I put some mirrors around to help reflect the sunlight for more optimal results? I know that's two questions, but they're kind of connected, so I hope it's not cheating. Thanks, Jack. And don't forget, today is what you make it, to so make it a good one. Well, Ronnie, first of all, thanks for calling in. Thanks for always being such a good friend to the show and for all the great information that you send my way. Uh, folks, many of you maybe heard Ronnie for the first time on a call-in show, I think, last week. 
Uh, this call came right in with it, and I just put it aside so I didn't play two of hers in the same week. But uh, Ronnie is a huge part of the show on a daily basis by being one of the best, uh, I guess I'd call her part of my independent research team, that there's probably 40,000 of you, but there's a, a dozen or so people that are hardcore with it and always dig up great stuff. I put Darby Simpson in league with Ronnie uh, and a few of you other guys, uh, Jason the Sodge and, and uh, some other folks uh, that you guys know who you are. And, and thank you to all of you and thank you to Ronnie. Uh, so, of course, I'll, I'll take your question, Ronnie, because you've contributed so much. Um, Here's, uh, here's my thoughts on this. Uh, first of all, yes and yes is the easy answer. You, you can use mirrors to bounce the light around. You can do things like paint the walls, uh, bright colors that will help with bouncing the light around a little bit. But for most plants, the direct sunlight is going to be far more effective than the bounce sunlight, uh, with the exception of a lot of the tropical plants and maybe some of the tropical fruit plant plants, smaller tropical fruiting trees and bushes were some things that you could look into, which with you being up in a northern climate, it would be the only way that you could grow them. And citrus would probably do okay with this too, but it may require a little more temperature swing than you're going to get in the house to get good yields of citrus, but you can always try it. You can always do things too, like take your citrus, if it's small enough plants, downstairs and outside during all of the warm part of the year and bring them in as the winter time comes to protect them and use that location. But bringing them up and downstairs might be quite difficult. Even a relatively small tree, the pot that it's in is going to be quite heavy. So you, you got to really think about the citrus thing. But you can pretty much grow any dwarf anything in there. But the, the problem that you're going to run into, unless you deal with the tropical plants when it comes to trees, is most of them have chilling requirements. They actually need to get cold for a part of the year. Apples and pears and things like that. And if they don't get their chilling requirements, then they generally won't bud and fruit well for you. So that's, that's the bigger concern with your fruit trees. And then, of course, there's pollination. So if you're going to have a fruit tree inside a house without any insects, they pollinate, and you're going to be spending a lot of time playing around with a Q-tip doing your own pollinating. So it would be probably more beneficial to find rainforest-style plants that produce fruit uh, that can deal with the steady temperatures. And the bounced, filtered sunlight is actually really, really good for them. That's, that's their native environment. So you're kind of replicating this, you know, mid-70s, low-80s temperature, upper room, sun hitting them. Even if the ambient air temperature is being cooled from air conditioning, the direct... Uh, absorption of the sun is going to bring their temperature up. And then the bounced light is, again, they, they're understory plantings, especially the smaller ones. So since I don't grow a lot of tropicals, I don't off the top of my head have uh, a bunch of ideas for you there. But uh, that would be where I'd look if you want any kind of tree or fruit. Dwarf banana would probably be one of the best things that you could do, and it would be unique that you could produce bananas. Um, and you don't need a pollinator for that. They're self-fertile. So that might be something. Look at a good quality edible dwarf banana plant, and you're still talking about a four- to five-foot plant, uh, possibly taller. And you're looking at about 18 months before they start to fruit for you. So that that's something you could look at. And any other tropicals, maybe guava or something like that. And if it requires pollination, just know you're going to have to be the pollinator. On gardening, though, more like, you know, if you have a lot of light up there, I mean, you actually have a really great opportunity to be producing things like lettuce and stuff like that that generally doesn't do well outdoors in the summertime. 
and then to continue to produce things that generally wouldn't do well in the wintertime by switching to more of a little bit of a summer-type uh, vegetable. So why grow a tomato indoors in the summer when you can grow beautiful tomatoes outdoors in summer? But if you buy some of the hybrid varieties, not GMOs, but hybrid varieties are specifically designed uh, to grow tomatoes in, in, in hothouses, uh, those would probably produce for you in the winter. So I would kind of flip-flop things and grow your winter crops in summer and your summer crops in winter as you can uh, with all that space that you have. I'm just happy for you that you've got your place finally, and hopefully you can put down some roots and grow the way that these uh, new plantings are for you and uh, certainly utilize the space. And I think plants inside the house have a lot of benefits beyond what we can eat from them. Uh, just having the plants in there, taking up the CO2, releasing the oxygen, and call me crazy, but I think plants do have a certain level of an energy field, and I think that's why we feel good when we're in nature. And if we can bring some of that into the house, that's so much the better. And thank you for your call. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Chris in Midland, Texas again. I was actually calling to ask you, have you ever used any of the um, uh, stick of vinyl that goes on your glass and it, uh, it prevents the glass from shattering in the house if, if a brake hits it or something like that? I believe it's made by 3M uh, or maybe DuPont. I'm, I'm not sure. Anyway, uh, it just seems like uh, something that's only 12 millimeters or 8 millimeters thick wouldn't really make that big a difference with glass and if somebody, you know, trying to make a quick entry into your house. Anyway, just wonder if you ever used the product or if you know any have any experience with it or if it's just not worth um, worth the trouble. Love to hear your comments. Thanks, bye. Well, I'll tell you what, you or another audience member can help me give you a more definitive answer than you're going to get by sending me a link to the actual product that you're talking about because there's a lot of different vinyl films uh, that you can put on windows. And most of them that I found when trying to get you an answer, and, and I don't want to give you the wrong answer by having the wrong product, were more designed to cut the UV penetration of light. And uh, especially in hot climates, that can actually be a very good energy efficiency move, but it's not really designed to do what you're talking about, though it would probably have the same effect. I also think that maybe there's a little bit of confusion about what the anti-shatter properties are designed to do. This type of product, unless you've got a product I don't know about again, and I don't want to give you the wrong information, but... My head can't get around a vinyl product that's a couple millimeters thick that I'm going to put up on a window and is going to prevent somebody from getting in the house. That's not what this stuff's designed to do. What it's designed to do is hold the glass together so that when something does breach the window, you end up with the glass kind of in a pile on the ground to kind of make it more like the, the, the treated glass in our automobiles. If you've ever seen a car wreck where the front windshield is shattered, you'll notice that the, the windshield doesn't go into thousands and thousands of pieces. It cracks and all this almost looks like a little thing of diamonds and it mostly stays together. Uh, if you've ever been to a, ju a junkyard and there's been a broken window and you needed to work on a car and it was just easier to take a window out of it uh, that was already busted but still in place than to try to work around it and knocked one out with a sledgehammer or something, you know, it kind of comes out in one big piece or several large pieces. This type of product, this anti-shatter property, what that's designed to do is if somebody does throw a brick through your window or if a weather event causes it, so when you go to clean it up, all the glass is in one place. It's not shattered all over the house. It's not in people's feet and face and hands. And it makes cleanup easier and it makes the overall conditions safer. And this is not really a new concept because, one, we've been doing it with automobile windows for a long time, though it makes the glass expensive to do it at the level we do with an automobile. 
So doing an entire house that way would increase the cost of, of windows and the, the production of the house or re replacement cost of windows to a point where it gets a little bit uncompetitive. So that's why it's not done everywhere already. And, you know, generally we don't have a whole lot of windows blowing out of our house, and our house is stationary, and a car is moving at 60 miles an hour, so the odds that two cars would have a combined impact of 120 mile an hour is really high, and the odds that your window is going to be hit by something moving 120 miles an hour, unless you live in Tornado Alley, are relatively low, and even then the majority of houses will never be hit by a tornado. So because of that, it's just not been important enough to us to make this a safety standard in housing the way we have in automobiles. So my estimation is that these films probably don't get you anywhere near to that level of, of structural integrity, but increase it sufficiently that if something breaches a window, it's far better than had it not been there in the first place. Um, now, here's another concept, though, to look at for this as being an old idea. When I grew up in, in hurricane country in Florida, And we had a series of years where we had a lot of hurricanes threatening to make landfall in Jacksonville. None of them actually ever did. We had one tropical storm come through, and it wasn't that bad. And we had one hurricane that skirted us that got some flooding, but it really wasn't that bad. But there was a lot of, it's, it might be this time, it might be this time, it might be this time. And during these times, what we would do is take duct tape and put giant X's on the windows, especially the sliding glass doors. Because uh, everybody in Florida seemed to have a sliding glass door. And what that was designed to do the exact same thing. It was in no way going to prevent the window from being breached. But being you didn't want to sit and board up your windows every other day because it might happen. Uh, this was a, a get-by that if something did break the windows, if pressure did blow the windows out, that it would hold the glass together better. And in a couple instances where we know of it happening, it seemed to actually be more than like an urban legend. It seemed to actually be somewhat effective. And it makes sense. It's not about preventing the glass from breaking. It's about holding the broken pieces of glass together so that they stay in one place instead of going all over the place. And again, making cleanup easier to do and safer for the occupants of the house. So I think that's what you're dealing with. But if you want to send me a link to the exact product, I'll take a deeper look at it. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. My name is Dave. Currently living in California. My question is, in the event of uh, complete economic collapse, like we talked about on, on episode 935, what countries would you recommend going to? Uh, are there any freer countries than the United States? I'm asking this as an economist and a retired intelligence officer. Thanks a lot, Jack. You're doing God's work. Thanks for what you do. Uh, that's a question with no easy answer. Let me tell you, there'll probably be places in this country that you'd be better off being in than in most foreign countries. I think the idea that you're going to vacate this country during a economic collapse of the United States and somebody else will be a better place is, is really a thin idea. The most likely place that's going to do okay and still going to have problems is going to be the Asian countries, which are going to be much harder for you to go to because... Frankly, the way China feels about people is we have enough thank you. We'd like to export some. 
Um, I, I wouldn't want to be anywhere near India, and that's another huge population center. Um, but China's probably going to weather this storm and come out the economic heavyweight at the other end of it. But they're not going to do it without pain and suffering. And frankly, I hate to put it this way, but the Chinese government on some levels will simply look at losing some of their people during this as, as, a, as a casualty of, of economic warfare, I guess, is a way to look at it. Um, we fight wars differently today, don't we? I mean, in World War II... You told an American general, we can take that island, but we're going to lose 5,000 casualties, uh, probably 20, you know, 2,000 dead and 3,000 critically injured and not able to return to the fight. And he simply did the math and determined whether that stopped the initiative or whether it was an acceptable loss. And if it was an acceptable loss mathematically, he just did it. And if you tell an American general you're going to lose 5,000 men on an operation today, they're nowhere near as likely to go in and make that sacrifice. Well, China's not quite changed their tune on that. Uh, what makes them a dangerous military force also makes them dangerous to their own people. And I'm not putting them down because I'm talking about the way we thought 55, 60 years ago. Okay? Uh, we fought the Korean War that way. Hell, we fought the Vietnam War that way. We're not that, I mean, there's a lot of people alive today that were part of that war. Uh, there's a few people alive that fought uh, the, the World War II. Still, we still have a few of those vets left, and there's quite a few that fought the Korean War. So we're talking about a generation or two that we had the same mentality. Now, we did we have it domestically? No, but we had the mentality. And I think that's their mentality. So I think there'll be a lot of problems for China. I mean, you got to understand it's like saying, well, the drug dealer is going to be okay, uh, even if all the addicts die, but then a drug dealer has no one to sell their drugs to. Well, China is, is, it largely propped itself up by selling and exporting all of its stuff to us and to Europe. Those are its two big markets. Well, if we're both screwed, they have no one to sell to. Now, they have a lot of assets, but they got, see, this is what I think people don't realize. The United States financially collapsing is different than any other nation in the world financially collapsing, other than possibly Great Britain, which would pull us in anyway. Um, and I would say it's worse than, than Great Britain collapsing at this point in time. The dollar is the global economic standard. Everything else is tied to the dollar. If we go over the event horizon, we drag everybody in to the economic black hole with us, and we seem to be hell bent. Not just you know, like it's it, we're at a point now where I feel like we're 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 past the point of no return. But instead of like you know full power, let's try to stay out of the hole as long as possible and be prepared to go in when we do. With well, the, the, these clowns are freaking heading. Let's head on in there, you know. Um, so I don't think there's a lot of really great options. If I had to pick, uh, I would look to rural areas and probably Central and South America. But I would say you better be living very native-like. You better be blending straight in. If you think you're going to go down there with uh, a big, you know, suitcase full of money and set up your, you know, your your little plantation type environment or something like that. Uh, and be the, you know, the wealthy gringo. I think that when this happens, it's going to hurt people like that too. And I think that they're going to come and take stuff away from people like that. And that part of the world has a very long history of saying, because the reason you have nothing is because that guy has everything. Let's go get it. Like many places in the world do. So if you're living in those areas as a native, uh, the, 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 the reality is in a lot of the remote locations and, you know, I would say Costa Rica, Panama, places like that, where I've actually been, in those remote locations, those people are largely self-sufficient already. So, if, And those people have 
a tendency that when someone comes into their community, lives among them, and becomes part of their kind of extended tribe, so to speak, that they take them in as their own very, very quickly. As long as you're not trying to stay separate, you become part of that collective. So that might work. Asia, if you can figure out how to pull it off, might work. And in some areas, though, it might be worse than here for a while because I think let them die may be a policy that happens over there when this whole thing collapses because they're already going, how the hell do we deal with having two billion people? If a few hundred million die, we still have plenty left. And I'm, I'm sorry to put it that way, but I think that there's at least some people running that country that think that way. Um, or think... Maybe that's not being fair to them. Maybe it's more accurate to say that they think this way. If I have to lose a half a billion to save a, a, a billion and a half, it's worth doing. Because if I'm going to lose everybody, and it's an acceptable loss then. Because even the American general, right, that took the island and knew he was going to lose 5,000 men, he didn't want to lose the 5,000 men, but he wanted to save 50,000 men and, and understood that the sacrifice was either 50,000 or 5,000 and made that hard choice. And that may be a better way to look at it. So I'm concerned with that. Um, I don't know that there's a good country to be in. And I think I'm going to save some of my comments on that for a, a question down the road from somebody that asked kind of a similar question. As an investor, uh, yeah, I'm looking to China and I'm looking to the nations that are working with China that are modern developed nations like Australia. Uh, right now, I don't have a tremendous amount of money, but I, I do have some money uh, in Australian currency, and I think that's a good move. And uh, it's through an ETF, and I, I generally don't give out ticker symbols, but I will here. As long as you guys understand this is not a financial recommendation, it's just one place I have a little bit of money. But it's FXA. It's currently trading for about $104 a share, and it's uh, currency shares Australia Dollar Trust. And I'll tell you why I hold that versus just holding Australian dollars straight up or, or something like that. And that's because this is actually an Australian dollar investment uh, fund that pays a dividend. The dividend hovers right around a third of a percent, which doesn't sound like much until you find out that it pays out monthly. So a monthly third percent dividend. So when they do that, when they pay dividends out monthly in small amounts and break it up, what they're trying to do is get you to stay put for a while versus doing dividend capture where a company pays a big dividend, has a 30-day buy in advance of dividend uh, policy. So a lot of investors do dividend capture. They'll go in and they get a, a company they know is going to pay a good dividend. They dump a bunch of money into it you know, 40 days before the, the dividend payout date. They meet the requirement for the dividend. The day the dividend's paid out, they trade the stock and they do it some Somewhere else. That's an old technique, dividend capture. And there's different stocks have different requirements, different exchanges, different requirements, how long you have to hold to capture a dividend. Uh, but when you're paying out tiny dividends, but over and over and over again, it, it creates an, an environment that's designed for long term investing. So when you take a third of a point and you take it out over a year, you're looking at a 4% dividend plus diversification into Australian dollars. So that's uh, a place that I'm holding some money right now. But you mark my words that as you start to see the whole thing come apart, that's converted out into cash or silver or some other hard asset in as quick as I can get the trades done. So it's my finger's on the pulse of that like every other investment. There's, there's really not an economic safe haven that I'm aware of right now other than hard commodity, precious metals, uh, long-term investments. I would be... Looking at it more this way, how do I build up a resilient community around myself 
right now so that when this does happen, my safe place is with my community. Because I don't think it's going to be in, you know, I, 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 you know, you tell me where you think it's going to be good, and I'll tell you why it's not going to be good. Brazil, oh my God, you know, that's an emerging economy. They're probably going to come out the other side of this better off than we will, but there's going to be a lot of pain there. There's a lot of poverty there already. What happens when the, their social programs crumble because all of this international trade collapses? Uh, Russia, seriously? I mean, might actually be one of the better places to go. Rich in oil reserves, tough people that are already... But I mean, the, the organized crime in Russia is already atrocious. They've already been through one collapse. What happens the next time around? Uh, China, again, I think there's uh, we have to save the most by allowing some to, to just atrophy. Uh, mentality that they're going to take possibly due to necessity. If you can get into the right place in the right time, maybe you can ride a storm out there, but I'd rather be here. And I want you to think about this as I, as I conclude this call. When Fernando Aguirre decided it was time to get his ass out of Argentina, and he ended up in Northern Ireland, he only did so after several years of trying to come here. Uh, so a guy that's dealt with it, been through it, that knows it better than just about anybody because he's lived through it, if he had his choice of anywhere in the world he would be, it would be right here. And please be aware of the grass is always greener. Uh, maybe not so much with investments and money. I think there's a case for international diversification with your money right now with your finger on the trigger to pull it back at any given point in time. But when it comes to where you're going to live, man, I'll tell you what. I think that uh, it's, you're hard-pressed to find a safer place than uh, right here. And if you're going to do it overseas, you're going to have to do it in a rural, self-sufficient environment that's already that way. And you better be doing it in a way where you blend in and become part of the community that you're, you're moving into. Because if you do it as a wealthy gringo, you're as good as dead when things go wrong. Unless you have enough money to hire about 20 armed goons and do like the 80s movie thing, you know, where the guy's got his compound and it's got seven layers of barbed wire around it and all. And I'm sorry, even in a collapse, I just don't see that as being any way to live. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Uh, my name is Matthew here calling from Tucson. Uh, quick question for you. I haven't really been able to find a straight answer on it. I'm uh, going to start a garden soon and was wondering about using seeds from produce that I'm buying in the store right now. Uh, I do plan on buying some heirlooms and things like that from some catalogs I have, but like we get some uh, squash and things where the seeds actually sprout inside them before we uh, even get to eating them. So wasn't sure about using those for planting, if I should be worried about pesticides or chemicals that were you know, possibly applied on them uh, since they weren't organic, and if that would transfer into new growth if I do plant those seeds. So uh, any insight on that would be appreciated. Thanks so much. Love the show. Have a good one. Well, occasionally having seeds sprout inside a fruit or something or like that is not really uh, a big cause of concern. It happens when temperatures and time and ripeness are, are right. In fact, it's one of the ways that some plants actually uh, propagate themselves by creating this moist, warm environment that as it breaks down, and it's usually something's overripe uh, or has been left in an unprotected environment, uh, for unchilled environment for too long, has begun to go bad with the food itself when that happens. So that's not my concern. Uh, my concern is also not really 
um, unless you're trying to do something like sprout a sweet potato or something like that, uh, chemicals. Um, if you're going to eat a pepper from a store and that's okay, the residual tiny trace amount of chemical that might be in the seed uh, when you plant it and the plant grows is so infinitesimally small compared to what you already ate in the pepper, it's really not a concern. And by the second generation, there would be just nothing left. So that's not a concern. My concern is a couple different things, depending on the, the, the variety and, and what have you. The first is that in many instances, you're buying a hybrid vegetable. It's simply not going to reproduce, reproduce true to type. So if you buy a hybrid tomato, which most of the tomatoes you're going to buy in a grocery store are, you plant it, it will probably grow. It'll grow a great big healthy plant, and then a tomato that's on there will look nothing like the tomato that you, you, you purchased and got the seed out of because, it's, it's again, it's a cross. So it's like if I take um, a, a Chihuahua and a, I don't know, a, a, what's the little, another the little yippee-dow, Yorkshire Terrier, and I crossbreed them. And, and the mother is holding the seed, the embryos, right? And she's going to later have puppies, right? And she's going to have those puppies. And we take those, the, the mother won't change, She'll look just like what she's supposed to look like. And then when she has babies, she'll have a hybrid baby, a Chihuahua uh, Yorkie cross. I don't know, Chihorkie, Ch right? So she has a Chihorkie. So we have a bunch of little Chihorkies. Now, if we have another uh, little Chihorkie uh, from another crossbreeding, and we take those two Chihorkies and we breed them to each other, you would think that their puppies would look very much like the two of them. them. Some of them will show far more Chihuahua characteristics. Some will show far more Yorkie characteristics. And some of them will just kind of look different altogether. And only by constantly selecting the ones that come out looking like true Chihorkies and rebreeding back into that will we eventually create a new line uh, that will breed true. And then we'll have a new heirloom puppy. Right, but we'll have to do the seven, eight generations of selectively picking out the ones that we, 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 we are breeding true to type and breeding them to other true to type and continuing to do that. That's how a lot of, if you want to make a hybrid vegetable into a new heirloom or a new, uh, you know, will reproduce true to type, you're looking seven, eight generations of having, you know, the first time you do it, maybe one out of ten or one out of twenty coming out true to type. So it's a very long process, and it's easier just to go to heirloom seed. So you've got that working against you. The other thing that you've got when you get into squash, most squash that you're going to find in the store, especially if you look at winter squash variety, summer squash, there's a lot of hybridization there as well. But if we go into winter squash, winter squash is very hardy, very robust stuff. Usually it's grown with other crops like corn or what have you. Uh, so there can be some chemical residual from the crap that they spray on the corn and all. Uh, but if you spray it with too much, it'll die. So that's not a huge concern. Um, but they're, they're generally speaking, they would breed true to type, except you have no way of knowing how many different varieties of squash were being grown there. And unless a grower of squash is selectively hand pollinating or keeping very specific distances, squash are heavy, heavy, heavy when it comes to interpollination. And some of the offspring of that are not very tasty at all. So a lot of hybrid squashes are kind of yuck. So saving squash seeds from there, I think that you run a, a, a risk. Now, can you do it and see what happens? Of course you can. 
And I've grown some stuff, like I grew Santa Claus melon one time, uh, as they call it, uh, from store-bought melon, and it was a tropical fruit. I figured this is probably from hell and gone, and it grew just fine, and it, it, it worked. I've grown watermelon uh, from seeds taken out of, of you know store-bought watermelon, and I got this great big plant and these little tiny melons, and they just didn't go anywhere. And then, you know, the heirloom melons that I'm growing this year are the size of friggin' basketballs and still going. So it, it, it's, it's a crapshoot. You can do it, but you don't know what you're going to get. And if you only have a limited amount of garden space, seeds so cheap, you might as well buy a known quantity and grow those. So it, it's not that you can't, and it's not that there's a chemical concern. It's that these this is the unknown, and you don't know what you're going to get. And When it comes to grocery store vegetables, 99 times out of 100, even if it's organic, you're looking at hybrid varieties because they're grown that way because they ship better and they're, they're grown to store well uh, and they're not grown for flavor. Right, and that's why homegrown grown heirloom produce has so much of a better flavor to it. Uh, but there's certain varieties that are an heirloom variety. Uh, if you took Roma tomato out of the store and save seed out of that, you're probably going to have no problems whatsoever. It's an heirloom tomato. It, it's, a, it's an open pollinator. It breeds true to type. It's a very old uh, tomato. But again, what does a pack of tomato seeds cost? You know, I mean, so you're going to get a better quality tested out seed batch that way with no concern of any kind of chemicals. Now, I mentioned like potatoes and stuff like that. Potatoes and other things like maybe garlic are often sprayed with uh, a, a retardant that delays them sprouting. So I would not try to propagate you know, sweet potato, potato, etc. from store-bought potato. If you bought organic potatoes or sweet potatoes, you could do it without any problems whatsoever. Uh, but that, that retardant a lot of times, even if you plant uh, store-bought potatoes, they kind of grow and they look like they're doing really well and they kind of get sick and die. That's because the, 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 the disease was terminal but not immediately terminal, more like uh, a cancer than a gunshot to the head. Uh, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Brian Nichols calling from the Big Island of Hawaii. And I stumbled on your show just today. It was so enlightening. Really enjoyed it. Uh, I guess my comment would be uh, we moved from Mansfield, Texas, where I think you're moving down into our neck of the woods uh, from Arkansas, which congratulations. Uh, we still own our home there, even though we bought a acreage out here on the Big Island. We're doing aquaponics and all kinds of uh, good things for the earth. Uh, we just felt we needed to live away from a population center. We're in the most remote population in the world, being 2,800 miles from anything. Anyway, your comments on if it was a good move and what do you think uh, the Big Island plays into uh, things if uh, things start to fall apart? I guess that's my question. Good luck on the rest of your podcast. Thanks. Bye. See, one of the things I think that trips a lot of people up when you're trying to be prepared as you can for, for life is expecting that there's a, there's a right answer. That I can say, if I live X, then it won't matter what happens, I'll be just fine. And the reality is X always comes with positives and negatives. And where you're at has a lot of positives. Your positives include a very stable climate. You have an extremely stable climate, and absent uh, the resurrection of one of your major, major volcanoes going completely ape shit, uh, you, you're not in a place where you're likely to deal with too heavy of a natural disaster. If you have acreage, I know you're not on the coast, so you can probably even stand through most storms or tsunamis without 
any major real trauma as long as you have basic preparedness and common sense procedures and things like that. So you've got that going for you. The stable climate also brings you extremely fertile volcanic soil. And you live in a place where you can pretty much go outside, eat fruit, spit, spit pits on the ground, and stuff will grow. And it'll be extremely productive. Um, there is a bit of, a, of an invasive pig problem there that can be a protein source. You can raise animals with uh, no real heartaches uh, in Hawaii, especially chickens do very well there. There's pretty much food everywhere uh, in any place where things are allowed to grow back and it's not turned into a, a mainstream street. And you're right, you are far away from a lot of the big problems, uh, but you're not that far away from the problems that you have on your own island. Uh, you're on the big island, and there's a huge population there, and there's a huge welfare population there, and now you now live in a state that's one of the first states in line to go bankrupt. In California, I would say California, uh, Illinois, uh, Hawaii are your, uh, your three most likely to go bankrupt first. And then you're going to have a whole shitload of people that are pissed off, and you are on an island, and you can't get away from them, and they're going to come try to figure out how they can take from people that have. And on an island like Hawaii with a lot of food, that's helpful because there's a lot of things that can be uh, taken, but a lot of stuff that's not going to be able to tolerate it when thousands and thousands and thousands of people do it. There's fish, and that's great, but that involves travel to the coast. You see what I mean? It's 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 always the case that no matter and, you know I can go I can go on and on and on with that analysis of any place that you give me. You'll say, what about Idaho? There's already a bunch of survivalists up there. Yes, and a lot of them are crazy and nowhere as prepared as they claim to be, and they're likely to turn on everybody else because they're armed and they have an attitude problem. Uh, additionally, you do have major population centers in Idaho, and you have a lot of government assistance there. You, I mean, it, it, it just doesn't matter, you know, and then the pe there's going to be some people from surrounding areas that think that's the place to go, and there's not enough resource there for everybody. It gets cold as hell, you know. Well, what about, you know, the, in the middle of the desert in Arizona? There's nobody there, and there's not many resources there. And if anybody does come, then the few resources that are there that can sustain a small population can't possibly sustain a large population. By the way, Phoenix is a mecca for illegal immigration. You've got the border. I mean, it, it doesn't matter. You give me the place, and I'll start picking apart the problems with it. So the, the reality is, is it a, you know, your big question is, was it a smart move? Do you love it there? Is it where you want to live? Can you see yourself building a community of individuals around you uh, that are like-minded people that agree to have each other's back in a tough time? Is it a place that you want to make your stand? Do you know what you can do there for yourself uh, to make yourself sustainable? Are you on that pathway? Are you prepared to deal with what may come your way? Uh, if the answer to those questions are yes, then it's a smart move for you. Would I do it? Probably not. Probably not. I don't think you could get me to move there. Um, not so much because of the problems, but because of how far away it would be uh, from family that we're already dealing with being too far away from right now. Um, it's also just not my thing to live in a place where it never gets cold. I actually like it to get cold a little bit out of the year, and you know the South has that going for it. Still, we actually get a little bit of a winter, and um, it's just I don't know, man. It's just you know that's not my thing. That's your thing, and that's okay. And I think that's. With all these different things, we need to start getting into our minds that there is no out. There's You, you don't get to draw the get-out-of-jail-free card uh, with this mess that, that we're going to be dealing with. Everybody's going to deal with it on some level, one way or another, and it's not going to be good for anybody. 
Now, it can be good on the other side, or it can be much worse on the other side, and we really don't know how that's going to play itself out. Um, could there come a time where it makes sense to jump and, and, and leave the country? Yeah. Uh, I think you should have at least a plan in place where you could do that if you had to, but I, I don't even think it's very realistic. Where are you going to go? Who isn't going to have a problem if, the, if this economy goes off the deep end? Um, Europe, right? I mean, and trust me, there's, there is a value in being in a place where people see you as one of them. So I think the biggest thing that anybody can do, no matter where you want to be, is start making yourself part of your community. Surround yourself with people that think the way that you do. That's how we're going to get through this stuff. It's not going to happen any other way, and there's no magic place to go where everybody's just going to leave you alone, and nobody, and it's going to be like you know Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. It just doesn't exist. But I'm fine with your decision. If you told me you lived like uh, in the city, on the shore, in a condo, and you were doing aquaponics on your roof, uh, I would tell you you need to get the hell out of there because that place is going to be ground zero for disaster. Uh, when things go off the deep end. There's a lot of people living just on the outskirts of the beautiful part of the larger Hawaiian cities that are living completely and totally off the government, and those people are going to go freaking crazy uh, when austerity measures hit the United States. And sooner or later they will. It's a mathematical certainty. Let's take another call. Good evening, Jack. How are you doing? This is Drew Wright from sunny southwest Florida. i got a question about... Um Gold coins, 90% silver gold coins, 1964 or earlier. And uh, I was wondering, I'm looking at a company, uh, Monex. They've got for a $1,000 a uh, bag of coin, a face value of $1,000 with uh, approximately 700, 715 ounces of pure silver. I like, I guess they call that junk silver. I wonder what your idea about that is. It's 90% silver. It's like what you uh, talked about before, the pre-1964. These are dimes and quarters. Really good deal, I think. If uh, 715 ounces of pure silver for a thousand dollars, going at uh, I don't know what uh, twenty-seven dollars, I think it is today for ounce. Yeah, twenty-seven twenty-seven. So, just your thoughts and your ideas on that. Thank you. Bye. Oh, well, I, I think you've definitely got some confusion here on what you're looking at. You are looking at. Uh, on Monex, and they are a, a reputable company and certainly somebody you can buy from, but you're looking at a, a bag of silver coin, yes, with a $1,000 face value, but that's not how much it costs you. That's how much the face value of the coins are. So that's you know enough quarters to, to total up to $1,000 if the bag was full of quarters. And a $1,000 face value bag of silver coins, whether it's dimes, whether it's quarters, whether it's 50-cent pieces, whether it's silver dollars, whether it's a mix of all, will average out to about 715 ounces of silver, just like they're saying. So I'm not telling you anything that's not true. But if you called them up and said, I'd like to buy a bag of that $1,000 bag of silver, they're going to tell you the price is going to be probably somewhere as of today at about $20,300 to $20,400 or higher. Um, because you're going to pay the silver spot price plus a premium plus an overage to buy it. And if you, if you go to Monex's own site and you see a little ticker going across this silver, platinum, palladium, gold with pricing and how it's moved today, um, you'll see a list of live current prices and then you'll see commodity prices. And if you go down, you'll see where it says silver, 90% silver coins and a spot price of $27.98. 
That's not $27.98 for an ounce of coin. That's $27.98 spot price on an ounce of silver contained in those 90% coins. So if we weigh them, we can do a little math and figure out how much silver's in there, and that's the spot price. And that spot price means, in general, if you went to go sell your coins, they're going to pay you less than that, and if you go buy new coins, you're going to pay a premium over it. The spot price is very misleading, and it gives people a lot of heartache because they're trying to buy at spot and not figuring out why they can't. And it's funny because a fellow thinks he can go in and he can sell at spot and buy at spot. If that's the case, how does the dealer make any money? Spot is the price that a dealer or large buyer would expect to pay when buying large amounts of silver. I'm talking a forklift needed to bring the pallet in, that amount of silver. So like anything, when you buy more, you pay a better price, and when you buy less, you pay a higher price. So the way a silver dealer makes money is you come in and you've got a few ounces of silver and he pays you a couple dollars an ounce under spot and he turns around and sells for a couple dollars an ounce over spot. That's the only way you're going to have people dealing in silver. If they can't make a profit, they're not there as a public service. They're there as a business person. So you're looking at a bag of silver that would cost you about $20,000. Now, if you want to invest $20,000 in silver, is that a good way to do it? It's certainly not a bad way to do it. It's about the lowest premium you'll pay on physical silver, and it's far more divisible than something like large 100-ounce or even, let's say, kilo uh, silver bar. So I think it's a valid way if you, that's the level of investment. Uh, I wouldn't go out and buy $20,000 worth of silver right now unless I had none at all and unless I had enough income and, and, and assets that you know I was putting about 5% in, that, and that's what that totaled for me, and I wanted to make that investment, I would think that would be a good way to do it. Uh, I also get a lot of questions. I kind of want to cover this one because it comes all the time. Who do I buy my silver from? Listen, guys, it's, it's very, very simple. All of the big companies are reputable. Monex, Apmex, all of them are reputable. Silver spot prices are a known commodity. It's just like looking at a stock price. Um, and you can simply decide that based on the total cost of the transaction, whoever is selling, you for, selling to you for the least might be the way to go or whoever you most want to give your business to. Because when you start splitting hairs at the volume of silver most people are buying, uh, it's not really that big a deal. So you're paying a dollar more over spot here than over there. Do you like the company better? If you're buying five freaking ounces of silver, it's five freaking bucks. You can't buy a latte and a donut for that anymore. Um, and if, if you're buying silver for long-term insurance, trust me, the day that you're, you know, silver's worth a couple hundred dollars an ounce, which is possible, you're not going to give a shit whether you spend a dollar an ounce more or not. Uh, so I, I would say that that's a good way to go. I also try to buy small quantities of silver when I'm buying on eBay, and I buy a lot of silver dimes and silver quarters are my main thing that I do that for. And with small purchases, eBay's a good way to go. It's a fairly anonymous transaction, and I can usually do better than buying the same product at Atmex. What I do when I want to do that to know if I'm getting a good price, I go to Atmex. I click on silver. Once I click on silver, uh, I click on another thing. It says 90% silver specific coins by the roll. And then I go in there. And I, I, when I go in there, there's all different kinds I can buy, but I can buy single rolls of different coins. And if I'm looking at buying, you know, Franklin silver dimes uh, for a roll, then what I want to do is I want to go and look up on Atmex and see what they're selling for on Atmex that day. And when I do that, I can see that a 
role of Franklin Roosevelt Dimes pre-1965, uh, 90% silver coin, 50 coin roll, average circulated condition today is selling on Atmex for $137.74 if I do it by check or bank wire, which I'm not going to be setting up checks and bank wires for that small of a transaction. Uh, let me shut off the chat, ladies, so leave me alone on Atmex. Uh, so 141 bucks, let's call it, for a credit card purchase, plus shipping. So I can add that to my cart, say I want to buy one of them right now. Don't worry, I'm not going to buy it. But I'm going to give you kind of what I do like this. I'm going to say check out. Now the next thing I do when I get to check out is I'm going to see how much it's going to cost me when I want to uh, to uh, to pay. Being careful, being careful not to actually make the purchase and go past step three or four. I can see that if I'm paying by credit card, they're going to have shipping and handling of twelve ninety five, and I can take the hundred and forty two bucks that they want for it, and I can say, well, that's a hundred and fifty four dollars, and that means if with shipping I can go buy a roll of uh, dimes on eBay for under a hundred fifty four bucks, I'm buying below the general dealer market rate. And that means that I'll probably be willing to pay about 140 right now, including shipping, if I'm buying today off of eBay, and I'll probably be able to do that. And odds are I'll be able to go there and look at buy it now pricing and get somewhere in that range without having to bid against anybody and dealing with a sniper coming in and stealing the bid in the last three seconds of the auction. So that's actually how I buy my silver. It's how I recommend that you buy your silver. And if you just want to get some and not worry about the ten bucks uh, that you can probably save on average on a roll of dimes, maybe maybe ten bucks you can save on a roll of quarters, uh, or you want to buy a lot of them and get a discount or whatever, or pay enough to do by bank wire, then you can go ahead and just buy from Atmex or Monix or whatever. Until you start buying bags, though, you're nickel and dime in the savings. To me, it's it's still ten bucks. Now I look at it a different way too. I buy enough stuff on eBay, including silver, that I get about $10 in eBay bucks a month. So that $10 is also off of the price. So uh, off of several rolls, I'm, I'm even getting better pricing and buying more silver. So that's what I do. But the bank, the, the bags of $1,000 face value don't cost $1,000. They cost about $20,000, $21,000 right now uh, for that 17, 715 ounces of silver that are in there. Uh, let's take another call. Hey, Jack, it's Survivor uh, on the forums. Uh, I don't know if you asked this, answered this question before, but uh, I was wondering what your uh, perspective is on mobile homes. I think you you have a mobile home. Uh, my mother uh, thinks that uh, they're not a good investment because they're hard to uh, uh, maintain or add on to or something like that. And I guess some other people had similar views. We, we do know people who have those things. And... Um, Certainly seems to be uh, some of the less expensive places to live. Has some appeal to me. I already have like a, a, a bug out location with a yurt, but it's four hours away, and I have a little tiny, uh, very small condo. It's kind of like my base camp near where all the jobs are in the city. But um, I'd really like to have something like uh, that, that I could get to on a weekend, pretty much every weekend, a couple hours away. So uh, yeah, I was just wondering uh, what, what what you take is on that and. Uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, thanks a lot, man. All right. Well, it, it all depends, Survivor. Um, it, it depends on where, when, how, how old, what type of construction methodology, etc. Um, probably the best manufacturer of, of mobile homes that are classified as mobile homes is a company called Solitaire. 
And uh, it's an option for us as we look for land and some other things that we're considering, whether we buy a site-built house, it's already there. If we go with another mobile home, we will buy a piece of land and put a brand-new one on it and have it customized the way that we want. Um, and it depends on what you want to do. If you want a little getaway place, then you can, you know, it, it's really not a bad way to go at all. You don't have a lot of, like, you know, tornadoes up that way, even though Mastodon's had one. You don't have a lot of them, uh, and that's one of the bigger concerns is that they're subject to basically being blown to shit in a tornado. But they do not appreciate in value the way that a site-built home does. And it's very possible, especially with lower-quality homes, you could end up with a 30-year mortgage on a mobile home that's all but worthless by the time that it's paid off unless it's meticulously maintained. And But the reality is they're not any harder to maintain than a site-built house. They're just less forgiving about it if you don't take care of them. And for the person that's going to be away a lot and not there like a weekend getaway, that's a concern. You got to make sure you're taking care of them. Um, but I definitely don't have any problem with them overall, or I wouldn't have bought one and lived in one. Now, if you're really concerned with quality and long-term reliability, there's a lot of things that you can do to improve mobile homes uh, when you're purchasing one to make sure that happens. The first one would be to uh, deal with a manufacturer who already does this or offers the upgrade and pay for the upgrade, and that is go to 2x6s in the walls and floors versus 2x4s the way many are built. It is a huge improvement in efficiency and construction quality and longevity for the, for the house. So that that's one. Um, another thing to look at is what's called modular. Now, a lot of people try to say, well, it's a modular home because they think it sounds better than a mobile home. Uh, there's it's a very clear-cut difference when one goes from being mobile to modular. It used to be that modular homes just flat-out looked more like a site-built home, and there was a very clear delineation in, in the marketing that this is a modular home dealership and this is a mobile home dealership. We sell both. The modulars are here and the mobiles are there. Today, most manufacturers of mobile homes can build any mobile design you pick out as a modular. Now, what's the difference? It doesn't have a great big frame underneath it. It's built off-frame. It's put down onto a foundation, and it's built to site-built code requirements. And that means that once it's put in place, it is real estate. It is not a mobile home. It is treated like any other piece of real estate. The financing is the same, so you get better interest rates and things like that on it. It's, it's treated like a site-built home because, in essence, that's what it is. It's a factory-built, factory assembly line-built, site-built home that's brought in in pieces and set up. And once that's done, it, there ain't no difference on God's green earth between it And, and another home. And the, the beauty of that is, from a square footage, options, customization standpoint, that modular home will blow away any site-built home built for the same price. You, it's going to cost a lot more than doing it as a mobile home. And generally, you're looking at about $20 a square foot upgrade in cost. So if we're talking about a 2,000-square-foot house, that's going to put an average 2,000-square-foot house mobile home at about $80,000. Because uh, it's going to run around $40, $42 a square foot. We're going to jack it up to about $60 a square foot. And we're looking at $120,000. But you're talking about a $120,000, 2,000-square-foot home that if you built it in most markets would probably cost you $160,000 to $200,000 to build. So that And it's not a mobile home anymore. It's not coded as a mobile home. It's not classified as a mobile home. And if we start looking at smaller homes, if we start looking at something like let's say a little 1,200-square-foot home, uh, we'd do that with a mobile home for about $40 a square foot. That's going to bring us up to forty-eight grand, 
which is pretty cheap to live in, right? I mean, that's you a lot of cars you can't buy for that anymore. Well, we can do that as a decked-out modular for between $72,000, $80,000, depending on the options, what you put in it, what kind of flooring and things like that. So that, again, I mean, you can't site-build shit for $72,000. So it, it's it's all kind of it's like anything else. It's a, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. It cuts both ways. It's cheaper, but there's greater depreciation. You can upgrade it to a mod, but your cost gets much closer to a site-built home. But you still get more, but then you still have stigma in some people's minds that, you know, this looks like a mobile home. Now, again, a manufacturer called Solitaire, unfortunately, I think they only sell... In Texas, Oklahoma, and New Mexico. I think that's the only place you can buy them. If you go by their site, though, and look at what they have, they are phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. And even in their mobiles, they do some things that I don't know if any other mobile home manufacturer does. And it's something you can look for. If you find somebody doing this, I think that it would, it would really increase the value, perceived value, long-term value. One is when you look under any mobile home, you see great big steel frames. And in just about every place I've ever looked at a mobile home, that frame ends, and then about a foot of wall continues, and your outer edge of your wall is not directly on top of the steel of the frame. So the girder ends and the wall continues past. And you can see older mobile homes sometimes the walls begin to sag, and that's a direct result of you're just supporting it with wood versus steel. If you go underneath the solitaire home and you look, that steel runs from the outside wall to the outside wall all the way across. And it's something that I do not understand for the life of me why their competitors haven't started doing it yet. Maybe somebody's doing it. But I've looked recently at new builds from Champion and Southern Homes, and neither one of them are doing that. And that's a big selling point to me. So that's another thing you can look at. Another thing that, that solitaire is really good about If you go into their homes, is mobile homes have a very distinctive roof line. If you're looking at real estate online, and they don't show you a picture of the outside of the house, uh, or it's one of the newer mo mobile homes that, that look more like a conventional house where you really can't tell it's a mobile home, and they've lowered it down instead of having it way high up, and they've built decks on it and all, and you're not, it doesn't really look like a mobile home. As soon as you go inside, you look at a roof line. And it's got that, you know, exactly what it is. And you go, that's, you look at the inside of these solitaires, they look like the inside of a side-built house. They change that roof line to look like, and, and I think that's a big thing. Most manufacturers also now will basically drywall the inside of mobile homes. Most of them call it something called blue nailing. It's generally about $10,000 as an upgrade. So you look at taking a $70,000 house and making it an $80,000 house. On a house payment, that's diddly crap. It will sell much better if you have to sell it. So it's all, again, six of one, half a dozen of the other. It's a lower entry point. It's less of, a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a, an upgrade. It's harder to get financing on, but there's more creative financing options, especially if you have a big down payment. Uh, so, I mean, all I can say is it, it's an option. And for a little camp or something, though, I mean, you could get yourself a little, little bitty single wide, you know, for... Uh, probably for $25,000, and $30,000, and it's a place to live. Uh, so that that's an option as well. Uh, you have other options. You could build yourself a tiny house up there, a little cabin or something like that, if you find a little place to do it. Uh, but the, the good news with most of these mobile home manufacturers is, even when buying these smaller houses, if you can find a piece of land, you can get an FHA loan combining the land and the house together, and uh, as long as you're a strong buyer, you can usually get that approved, uh, where something like a raw land purchase, and then you're going to see it, it gets into uh, a lot of difficulty with approval, and do you meet local codes, and, and things like that. Anyway, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Eric from Long Island. 
long-time listener, MSB member. I stream your podcasts pretty much daily and was wondering, uh, is it possible, you think, to add some kind of a share button or something that would easily enable me to uh, share episodes with friends or family who I think would really enjoy them? Uh, as an Android user, something like that might be easy from the smartphone where I don't have full access to the site, and I could easily uh, send those things on to people who will uh, expand your audience. Thanks for everything you do. Great show. Well, this is what I'm going to ask for some help from the audience with a caveat, though. Uh, I'm not sure how I would do this for the Android. I don't have an Android phone, so I don't even know what the site looks like. It's probably the mobile version of the site uh, on Android, just like it looks on my iPhone. Um, so I don't know if there's a way that I can put something on there that's basically like share this episode. And I, I really am asking kind of, what do you mean by share it? Do you mean spin the, the link into an email and send it off to your friends or text it to them? Or do you mean like share it on Facebook? Because I used to have a way where you could like it on Facebook and it would show up in your news feed and get shared to all your friends. And I thought that was cool. A lot of people were doing it. And then one day I decided to beef up my browser security and do a show for you guys on browser security plugins for Firefox. And I found a little plugin called Ghostly. And when I ran Ghostly on my own site, I found a couple different places that were uh, sticking marketing cookies, basically tracking cookies, onto uh, onto people's uh, uh, browser, including my own. And uh, one of them was really kind of one I don't didn't want on, to be to be putting on any of y'all, and it was from one of the uh, one of the website uh, tracking meters called Site Meter that I was using. So I took that off. And then there was another one on there that I really didn't like either. And there's stuff out there like double click and all. And I'm even worried about that because you're going to get that if you browse today, you're going to have double click cookies pushed on you. It's, Google's behind that at this point, so. Um, it, it's all over the place. But there was another one, and I don't remember what it was called, but I was like, I don't want to be responsible for this getting onto my visitor's uh, site. And I couldn't figure out where the hell it was coming from. And uh, so eventually I just started turning off plugins. And I would turn off the plugin, and I would look at the site, and it would still be there. And when I got to the you know like this post on Facebook one and turned it off, it went away. And since it was something I didn't feel good about, and the person that built the plugin uh, didn't disclose it to you when you took their, you know, their WordPress plugin and used it, and basically they were monetizing it that way but hiding it, my thought was, what else might they do in the future using this plugin? So I kind of turned that one off, and I never found one for, you know, share on Facebook that didn't have some kind of crap like that attached to it. So I decided that I just didn't need to have one. And if people wanted to share it on Facebook, they could follow me on Facebook and, and then they could just, you know, share it. So if it's a Facebook thing, I'm not sure. I have a thing on there for Twitter. It's a clean plugin. It doesn't do any of this crap to you guys. And it's important to me that I don't do things to you guys like this, even if, you know, that's why I constantly analyze my own site and see, you know, are any of these people doing this stuff? And if they are, I turn them off. But the Twitter one's been kind of a letdown. I mean, I get maybe three or four retweets maximum for most episodes. Sometimes I might get four or five, uh, and it's real easy. If you're a Twitter user, you're on the site, you see it, you click retweet, send. And I'm not complaining. I'm just saying that it doesn't make sense to me to put a lot of effort into new ways for you to share the show if people are sharing the show more by word of mouth and sending emails, uh, especially at the risk of putting any kind of technology on the site that's going to subject you guys to tracking or marketing that you guys don't want you know, done to you. And I'm sure there's plenty of other places that you're picking it up, but I damn well don't want you picking it up for me. 
So that's that's kind of a, a concern there. But if you anybody can tell me ways that I can make it easier for people to share the show, especially for mobile users to share the show, let me know and I'll do it. As long as it's clean technology, and and you don't have to worry about well, you can send it to me. I'll turn it on as a test. I'll analyze it. If it ain't clean, I'll know. Uh, that ghostly plugin, uh, it's called Ghostly uh, for uh, Firefox, is awesome. It shows everything that's going on in the background when you get on a site. And, uh, you know, if you go to my site, you'll see some things like Google Analytics and all, but it's all clean, safe stuff. Uh, sometimes you go to a, some of these big sites, like go to Huffington Post with that thing on, and, and you just see the thing light up with 50 different trackers and stuff like that. And I guess some companies are okay putting that much tracking crap onto their users' browsers. Uh, and I know there's ways that users can selectively block that stuff, but I'm not going to be responsible for it. So I'll do anything I can to help you say, share the show as long as I'm not compromising the browser integrity of my, my users, even if they would be getting it somewhere else. I don't want them to get it from me. So any advice on this, please let me know. I'll do anything I can to help this audience spread the message. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Houston Colin from Tyler, Texas. Uh What I've got is not so much a question, but something I would like you to touch on for people. Um, there's a big issue that's been going on in the, in the gun industry for, for it's it's been you know forever. You know what caliber, you know what's better, 1911, Glock, 40 Smith and Wesson, whatever it might be. Here's my train of thought on it. Maybe you would touch on it. As long as you're carrying, that's what matters. And whatever you have, if you Train with it. it, it it's, it's, a, it's a practice just like anything else. If you don't practice, you'll lose it. That's why they call it medicine, right? They, you know, they call doctors, it, it's a practice, you know. And it, you know, there's so many people out there that say, that, you know, they call about 1911, 45 ACP is the only thing that's got stopping power, yada, 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 yada. 22, you know, long rifle doesn't have stopping power, whatever. Look, if you're carrying, it doesn't matter what you're carrying. God bless you for carrying and just train. Don't freak out and think, you know, if you're a first-time gun buyer that you need to, you know, no. Do do what's right for you and what fits your EDC application. That's what I've got. That's what I've got to say, Jack, and uh, love what you do, and uh, you're a patriot, my friend. Thank you. I'm so glad that you called that call in because I completely agree. I completely agree, and I'm going to give some, some statistics to back it up here in a minute. But I, I want to expand this call a little bit beyond carry guns. I want to expand it to rifles and carbines and things like that. I just got a question today. I answered it. I answered it the way I always do. I get this question 15, 20, 30 times a freaking week. And it was something along the lines of, Jack, do you think the 308 Winchester is a good rifle for shit hit the fan? Because it can also use the NATO rounds, and that means that ammo is highly available for it. And my response is, dude, sometimes people really overthink stuff like this. Any rifle is a good rifle for shit hit the fan if you can shoot it well and store ammo for it. I don't know where people are where they think they're going to need 100,000 rounds of ammunition. I really don't. I think you need more in a box, right? A couple thousand rounds isn't overkill, but if you have a couple thousand rounds of ammo and you get into a situation where you've been fighting a battle, so to speak, and you fired a couple thousand rounds of ammo, there's something really wrong. You're probably dead. Um, and as I feel a lot the same way about carry guns. Well, you know, you know, we've got people like Jaeger that'll tell you over and over and over. If you don't carry a Glock 19, you're wrong. And as much as I love James, I think you're so full of shit when you say that. I mean, 
Look at it this way. First of all, let's talk about handgun stopping power for a second. Let's talk about a real-world study that I've talked about before that is called an alternate look at handgun stopping power. It's on the Buckeye Farms Association uh, blog, and it was done by Greg Elifritz. I can't say his last name, so just that's what we're going to call him Elifritz. So he went out for 10 years and tracked shootings, people that actually got shot, not ballistic gelatin, Not what they tell you on Gun Blast TV. Now, this is somebody that got shot in the ass or the chest or the head or whatever with different guns. And he tracked as many people as he could find that got shot, how many times they were hit, how many times they were fatally injured, average number of rounds until the person was incapacitated, the percentage of people who were not incapacitated, one-shot stop percentage. They were shot one time and they were stopped. They were not necessarily dead, but they were done with resisting or attacking. Accuracy, how well the shooter was able to hit people in the head or torso. Percentage of actually incapacitated by one shot with a torso or a head hit. So obviously, you're less likely to be incapacitated shot in the leg than in the head or the chest. So they have, he has all these numbers and the categories he broke down were 25 APC 22, which he included short, long, and long rifle, all as one. 32, uh, the 380, the 38 special, 9mm Luger. 357 Magnum, and he combined Magnum and Sig as one category. 40 Smith and Wesson, 45 ACP, 44 Magnum, rifle, everything center fire in a rifle, and shotgun, all but 90% of results were 12 gauge. So there was only 10% of the results. Now, let's look at something that's ridiculous, right? Like, no one would carry a 22 for self defense, and a 9mm would be far superior to it. Well, there were 154 people shot by 22s during this period of time. Of 154 people shot, there were 213 hits. Uh, the percentage of hits that were fatal from people who were shot with a 22 and died was 34%. Average number of rounds until incapacitation, so the average number of time a person had to be shot with a 22 to stop doing whatever they were doing, 1.38. Percentage of people who were not incapacitated, people that were able to continue the attack or continue to retreat, Uh, or continue to resist, or whatever it is they were doing, 31% of people shot were able to continue. One-stop shot percentage, percentage of people that got shot one time and they were done, 31%. Accuracy of being able to hit the head or the torso, 76%. Percentage actually incapacitated by one shot when people were hit in the head or the torso, So the, what was the actual percentage of incapacitation if there's somebody was hit where you would expect to, to incapacitate? 60%. 60%, one shot from a 22, if they were hitting the head or the torso, 6 out of 10, we're done. How does that compare to the 9mm Luger? You would think that the 9mm would do a lot better, right? I mean, everybody would tell you that, including firearms instructors. Again, this is real world. This isn't, you know, this is people actually shot. Number of people shot a hell of a lot more, 456. Number of hits, 1,121. Percentage of hits that were fatal, 24%. 24% of 9mm wounds were fatal. Uh, let me refresh you. 34%, 22%. More people, more higher percentage, killed by the 22 than a 9mm. Average number of rounds until incapacitation, 2.45. Uh, refresher on the 22 was 1.38. It did better. The percentage of people who were not incapacitated, 13%. Here's where the 9mm did better. Excelled. Percentage of people who were not incapacitated, 
31%. So it had a much lower number of people that continued the attack. One shot stop was 34% for the 9mm, one shot stop for the 22, 31%. That's pretty much a tie. Accuracy of head and torso hit 76%. Uh, for the 22, 74% for the 9mm, slightly less accurate. Percentage actually incapacitated by one shot with a torso of head or head hit, 47%. So it, the 9mm stopped, one shot stop, 47% with torso and head hits. The 22 stopped, one shot stop with torso and head hits, 60%. 60%. So in many ways it performed better in a real-world scenario. Does that mean I recommend a 22 for you for self-defense? No, but it does mean that it works. Now, what concerns me is the percentage of people not incapacitated being a full third almost, 31%. Uh, and that shows the 9mm superiority even when all of the dust settles here. But it also takes away the myth that it's some kind of pea shooter. And I ask you this, if you've ever seen the Kel-Tec uh, 22 Magnum, the PMR-30, uh, it would be a very easy gun to carry. Uh, it's a 22 Magnum. And it holds 30 rounds, and you could whip off about five shots of it very, very accurately at close range and about a second. And it, how, what do you think its percentages of incapacitation with four or five shots to the head and torso would be from a 22 Magnum? I think it'd be really, really high. Now, again, am I recommending that as your carry gun? No. I'm just saying that this, 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 this fixation with, well, 40 is better than 9mm, you know, is it? And, and then there's some things that can happen here that will skew the results a little bit, right? So the 9mm, why does it perform so poorly in some instances? Two and a half shots average for uh, incapacitation. Uh, a lower percentage incapacitated by one shot with head or torso hits than the, than the little puny 22. What is, what is going on there? On some levels, this is the, this is the preferred gangbanger gun with a lot of full metal jacket rounds. Right, and a full metal jacket 9 millimeter is going to do a lot less trauma than when we have a expanding hollow point 9 millimeter. So by making good ammo choices, we can change things. But that doesn't negate the lethality of a 22, does it? Um, if we look at something like 45, we'd think the 45 would do real, real well. Um, the people that shoot 45s apparently can shoot well uh, because 85% of shots hit the head and torso. And 51% were incapacitated by a single shot when hitting the head and torso. Half of people hitting the head or torso with a 45 out of 200 people plus shot were incapacitated. 22 still did better at 60. What is it? A 22 is a damn penetrating little bitch. That's what it is. It, it is a penetrating round. Elephants have been killed with the 22. There's a story in one of Capstick's books. A guy shot an elephant he thought in the ass. Uh, with a 22, there were poachers, and he was going to chase the elephant out to the other guy that had an elephant gun. And uh, the elephant ran the wrong way, and they figured, well, they'll wait a while, see if they go out to get the elephant. Next thing they hear, the elephant die. And he had shot at a raking shot through the ribs, and the damn little bullet went all the way up through into the lungs and heart and killed the elephant. A 22 long rifle, not a 223. In fact, a 223 probably would have blown up on all that big, heavy uh, you know, skin and all, but that little 22 just cut through there like a little knife. So... This is, again, what my point to all of this is just to open your mind and get out of the, the argument at all. What do I want for you in a carry gun? This is what I want for you. I want a gun you can easily operate. I want one that's comfortable for you to carry. 
I want you to be comfortable shooting and carrying. Shooting comfortable is important because that'll let you do what you need to do if you ever need to draw it. Carrying comfortably is almost as important, if not more important, because it's not comfortable, you're not going to want to carry it. If you have those two things and you got reliability on top of it, great. All this stuff with, well, you know, these trainers and all, and I'm a big believer in all this training. I really am. But, you know, this stuff like, well, you know, we, we've put a thousand rounds through our weapons and we see that anything except this model has failures or whatever. Every gun has failures. That's why we train for malfunctions. And you're not going to fire a thousand rounds. You're not going to fire a thousand rounds in a self-defense scenario. It's just not going to happen. Uh, my wife just came into the office and told me about the horrible thing that happened last night in Colorado. Even in that scenario, if there had been an armed citizen on site, there would have been a couple shots fired, and that would have maybe ended it. Um, I, I just think that people need to get a better perception on the reality of these, these scenarios and understand that, that, that the important thing is that, like, like the caller said, we are carrying and that we're carrying comfortably so that we're comfortable carrying, so that we carry all the time, and that we're proficient in what we're doing. And then I don't care if you're carrying a three eighty, I don't care if you're carrying a 9mm or a thirty eight, or for that matter a twenty two. I'm just glad that you're there. Um, and, again, this kind of just hit me because you just told me what happened. I hadn't heard about it till this moment, um, but I wish there had been an armed citizen on site that would have taken out that son of a bitch that did what he did. Um, I don't have any real details on it other than a lot of people were shot and the guy had a bunch of guns and had his, his house booby-trapped. I'll put a link in the show notes today so you can learn more about it if you haven't heard about it. But walked into a Batman movie in Colorado. And uh, uh, the gun control people obviously are going to use this to say we need more gun control. And I, as a gun carry advocate, I'm going to say we need more people carrying. We need more people carrying so that lives can be saved in scenarios like this. Uh, let's take another. And I bet... the I'm not going to say it, but I, you know, let's just—it it probably wasn't. But let's say if the mall or theater where this was a gun-free zone, how well would it have worked to keep this guy from doing what he did? What well, might have taken armed citizens out of the equation? Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, it's John in West Virginia, or I'm now calling Ground Zero of the Hot Apocalypse. Uh, I know you've heard about the storms and all this and that. I was at Fat Pyre for eight days and triple-digit heat, and I uh, somehow realized that all my preps were pretty much for cold weather, which it's, it's hard to prep for hot weather, but there's something I've got to look into is prepping for hot weather, because it was miserable. I've been good on food and water, and need to keep a little more cash on hand, a little more gasoline for the generator. I had to wait four hours to get gas, seen people fist-fighting in this and that. I just figured I'd call and touch base with you and let you know it's it's been a different. It's been an eye opener for me. It's a uh, time for me to make a few changes. Well, appreciate y'all. You how you do, Jack? And <laughs> all I can say is you told me so. <laughs> Thanks a lot, man. Hey, Jack. It's John in West Virginia. Um, another thing I was wanting to tell you is I realized how many uh rainy day friends you'll have all of a sudden when uh, everybody's without power and you have a generator. It seemed like I had friends coming out of the woodwork all of a sudden. Yeah, as charitable as I could be. Well, thanks a lot, man. 
I just let those two calls run together. They were back-to-back. I guess John forgot that part. So with John, we give him many flexibilities with his calls because he's such a member of the family here. Um, but it is funny how uh, in, in tough times, you know, you find out who your friends are unless you're the one with all the stuff, and then you have lots of friends. It's, it's interesting. But on the prepping for hot weather, one of the things you, you can add to all the kick-ass great stuff that Steve Harris talked about with us in the two shows that were directly as a result of this uh, hot apocalypse, as Sean calls it, uh, is fans. And fans are very low-draw devices. And just like you know, Steve taught you how you can do things like run your refrigerator a little at a time and keep your food from spoiling using an inverter out of your car, uh, you can run a couple extension cords and a couple of really big, heavy-blowing fans and at least be able to sleep with a fan blowing on you is a hell of a lot better than not having it at all. Uh, generators is a great idea. By the way, Steve's going to be coming back to do a show on generators, and uh, I think he's going to do a great job with that for us. But uh, fans don't require a generator. We can run those off backup power systems and inverters and things like that. And uh, one of the best things in the world that you can have to deal with the heat, uh, especially at night, a lot of th- people don't realize one of the things that happens with your house And while all of a sudden, even when it seems cooler outside, it seems hotter in your house, especially the way houses are built now, a lot of these houses have a considerable amount of thermal mass that will absorb heat. And basically, it doesn't really radiate inward until the sun goes down. And then all of a sudden, it just kills you, especially houses with a lot of brick or metal a lot of times will do this, especially if it's not real thick. It just kind of warms up and then radiates in. It just kills you. It almost feels like it gets hotter uh, after the sun goes down, you'd expect it to get cooler. And uh, it's it's something that is hugely alleviated by being able to open a bunch of windows and blow a lot of air through the dadgone place and keeping it from getting that hot in the first place. Uh, it does suck. It is harder to do. And if uh, you deal with a blackout for any length of time, you realize why the population of the South was so dadgone small until the invention of air conditioning. Uh, and I don't know if I'd want to live down here if we didn't have air conditioning. I think my wife would probably agree with that and want to, want to live anywhere near the south uh, if there wasn't no air conditioning. As much as we want to be close to family now, she'd probably be telling me, y'all need to move north. Because um, being in the south without AC is tough. And this year, uh, a lot of the northeast is just as hot or hotter than it's been down here. Uh, so, But at least you get a break in the evening, where a lot of times down here in the south, we don't get a break until about midnight when it seems like the temperatures really moderate. Uh, but good stuff, John. Thanks for sharing. And again, Mr. Harris will be back with a whole show on storing gasoline and generators to further extend this, uh, your, your ability to stand through uh, power outages and things like that. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is uh, Neil from Memphis, Outdoor Fury on the forum. I wanted to uh, thank you for the lacto-fermentation episode that you did. I just pulled my first batch out, and I have never tasted anything like you like to fermented pickles. So thank you for, for going over that. The uh, mold layer would have really freaked me out. Um, my question about that is, um, how do you clean the crock pot? I was kind of worried about using soap on it because I know that stone has absorbing properties, and I was worried that, you know, my next batch may have a bunch of soap bubbles in it if I were not to, if I were to use soap. So I would appreciate if you clear that up. Um, also, in regards to the permaculture zoning question, I appreciate that. Um, I do have five acres, and my chicken coop is a bit far away, but like you said, the problem is the solution. So I'm going to just make that zone one extend a few hundred yards, but it is what it is. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. Bye.
I remember the question on the chicken coop, and for the folks that didn't hear what I suggested, just make the entire path out to the chicken coop zone one. So even if it's very, very narrow, have all kinds of plantings and things that you can pick up and deal with on the way out and the way back. 100 yards is pretty far. I might even consider moving them with it being that far, but uh, but you can make it work if you want to. Now, on the lacto-fermentation and the crock, um, if you're using the crock I recommended, and I think most crocks out there, the inside is glazed. And since it's glazed, you're not going to have any problem by using a mild detergent. Now, what I mean mild, I mean fill the damn thing up with uh, with hot water in your sink and then use a drop, a single drop of detergent and give it a good scrub out with like a green pad or something like that. Dump it out, turn it upside down, but put it on like something under an angle so it can it can breathe and let it dry out and you're good to go. Now, the stones that come with it and come with many other crocs that are kind of like half circle, look like a donut when you put them together, those are designed to be very, very non-porous, but there is some porosity to them. There's a little bit of pores there, whether people want to accept it or not, because it's not glazed. So my solution to it is either to run them through the dishwasher, which you're going to get a very good rinse out of it, a very good sanitization cycle, and I don't think you're going to have any problems, and I've never had any problems doing that. Or if you don't want to do that or you don't own a dishwasher, boil a little bit of water and, and, and put them in it and boil them for just a couple seconds is all you'll have to do, and that'll kill any, any residuals that are on there. And it's really important to get the rocks clean. Because the rocks are going to be in contact with your food and holding it down. Uh, but you want to get the water level of the brine a couple inches higher than the rocks. And that means everything's submerged under the salt water. And it's not that big a deal then because anything that can cause you harm ain't going to live down there in all that salinity. And that's why you see the mold form on the surface but not down on your rocks and not down on your vegetables. Now, here's a little thing that I've picked up on. Uh, I've noticed that a lot of recipes call for adding grape leaves, and they're supposed to help things stay crisp and all. Well, I got to thinking, the way John from West Virginia we just had on one side, I got to thinking, maybe there's another reason for this. Remember the old story about you know the lady who always cooked the roast and always cut it in half, and the husband asked why she cut it in half, and she said she didn't know her mom just always did it that way, and they called mom. And mom says, I don't know, your grandma always did this. So they call grandma, and grandma says the, the pan was too small that we had, and the roast wouldn't fit in it, so I had to cut it in half to make it fit. And they had always been doing this under the assumption it's just the way it was done. I started thinking, is it really that grape leaves make it crisper? And it might be, or could there be another reason? And especially when I'm doing like jalapenos and garlic and escabeche and stuff like that with smaller items, a lot of times I'll put my rocks down on it, and I'll have a lot of escapes. The little things will come up from the side and float to the surface. And if it's early in the fermentation and there's not been a mold layer, I can grab them and eat them off the top and it's getting early taste and I'm happy. But if there's some mold forming at all, I really don't want to eat the mold. And I always skim the mold before I take my stuff out. You just get a ladle and take about an inch of your brine off and discard it and then you're good to go. So I got to thinking, could there be maybe another reason for these leaves? And I'm not saying I've cracked a secret code, and this may have nothing to do with it, but I thought grape leaves are fairly large. If I were to take four or five grape leaves and lay them on top of my, uh, my, my stuff that's being fermented and then put my rocks on top of that, gas would be able to get up and escape and all further ferment, but the little, little guys, the little peppers and olive, uh, garlic cloves and all, wouldn't be able to escape. And they'd stay down under there and get all fermented the way they're supposed to be and be all nice and yummy. 
Well, the problem is the only grapes I have around me are muscadines, and their leaves are little and they're bitter. Muscadine grape leaves are not good-tasting leaves like a lot of domestic grape leaves are. Uh, if you've never had stuffed grape leaves with meat and rice like the Greeks do, you need to go try it. I can't remember what they call it, but it's awesome. Anyway, so I thought they're bitter, and they probably won't make it taste good, and then and, and they're little. So I went out to my garden, and I cut about four or five big leaves of Swiss chard, and I tried it. It worked Awesome. I had no escapees. I just made like two layers of it and put it down. Well, we'd eaten all the chard and used up all the chard the next time I did some stuff. And we had some corn we were about to, to shuck and eat. So I just pulled the corn husks off and I made a layer of corn husks on top of it and held it all down. And it worked great. So one little tip I have to add to your fermentation, guys, is get some type of a neutral tasting or good tasting. You can use a big old cabbage leaf if you want to, if you've got a head of cabbage around. And just put a couple. And, that's, and where did it come from? from cabbage, because it's a very common thing to do with sauerkraut. You chop all your sauerkraut up, you save a couple big leaves, you put it on the top, so I've just expanded it to do with other things. So I thought I would throw that one in for you, but as far as cleaning the rocks, if you're completely concerned, you know, the stones that hold it down, just boil them. Uh, you know, boil a pot of water and stick them in there for a couple seconds. You can take it off the boil. And it'll kill anything and everything. But do give them a good clean and make sure you give your crock pots a good scrub out. Make sure if you're using the crocks like I've recommended to have the rim for the water to go in, really scrub the hell out of that little rim that the, the lid fits in because that gets kind of gnarly by the time you're done with a batch of fermentation. But there you go, a little extra tip thrown in by Jack. Uh, hopefully I've done a good job answering your questions today. And I appreciate every single one of you that participated in this show by making a call. Again, if you'd like to do this, you can call in anytime, 866-65-THINK. Leave me your message in about two minutes or less, and I will respond to your call if it comes up in the queue. Again, if you've called more than three weeks ago and you haven't heard your call in the air, it might be time to make that call a second time. Uh, it could have been a technical problem. It could have been just screened out due to call volume as well. With that, I do have everything wrapped up. Again, I want to remind you guys, Friday next week, I will be at the Self-Reliance Expo both Friday and Saturday. We do have that special meetup opportunity. You guys can come meet me, uh, some other cool people like Marjorie Walcraft and Jackie Clay and some other cool people. You can get in early. Just look for uh, Scott or Ron underneath the sign that says TSP Meetup near the ticket sales counter. Uh, you can get there a half hour early, and I'd get there a few minutes earlier than that so that you're part of the group that gets escorted in. They'll bring you in, treat you like VIPs, and you get to meet me and a bunch of other people before everybody else clambers through the doors. With that, it's been a great show today. Again, thank you for calling in. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution.
Nobody up there cares 